it's not as simple as higher interest rates mean disaster for economies. People are buying the picks and shovels in this AI gold rush. We're moving into a new regime which looks a bit more normal than the regime which existed for the 10, 15 years post the great financial crisis. Hello. As 2023 draws to a close, what should investors take away from the year? I'm joined by a panel of portfolio managers to take stock and to ready ourselves for 2024. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are a mass of multi-asset portfolio managers, if that is the collective noun. Joining from Hong Kong, we have Tasha Wang, who is also the author of the best-selling book, Techonomics You Should Know. Ian Sampson is dialing in from Singapore, and here in London is Talib Sheikh, who's recently joined the team and will be taking over official portfolio management responsibilities in January. So thank you all for joining me. Great, nice to be, great to be here. Well, before we jump into our main look back on the year, I want to start by asking you which one word sums up the past 12 months and why. So, Tausha, let's start with you, first of all. The word that comes to mind for me is divided. Certainly see different various parts of the market acting in very different manners, sometimes even in opposite directions. For example, equity and bond performance. And this year we have equity, uh, global equity generating almost 20% uh, year to day, whereas global bond barely made a low single digit. And that is after spectacular November performance. Another example that comes to mind is the, uh, the Magnificent Seven or the big tech versus, you know, essentially the rest of the um, the stock market. Um, this is what we call the narrow um, breadth of the market, whereby uh, the big overall market performance is driven by a small set of companies, whereas everybody else has fared relatively much worse. Absolutely. A divided landscape. We'll come back to, um, come back to that later on. Ian, what about you? What one word? I might go with Buffett's of the the Warren variety um, for for three real reasons. Um, first is that Buffett famously said, never bet against America. And I think you've seen that this year, uh, certainly with American growth and, and probably the S&P 500. Also, it was headlines around Buffett being uh, taking an interest in Japanese companies in the Japanese stock market earlier this year that might have supercharged the, the rally in Japanese equities that we saw. You know, debatable, but it was definitely part of that story. And of course, uh, very sadly, over the past month, you've had his right-hand man, Charlie Munger, passing away. So it's been quite a buffety year, I would say. Excellent summary. Thank you. And Talib, welcome to you. Um, what one word would you use to describe the year? Well, from a personal level, I'd probably say restful. Um, I'm new to Fidelity, so I certainly spent most of the summer on the beach. Um, from a market point of view, I think resilient. We started 2023 with most people looking for a recession on the back of the kind of unprecedented tightening that we've seen across the globe. And the reality is that the US consumer was incredibly resilient, buoyed by excess savings and more recently by uh, real income growth accelerating. And so... We, as we look into 24, the key question is, you know, can that resilience persist? Restful and resilient. You, you've got two words there, but um, I think both of them uh, apply certainly to you. I'd like you to begin actually now by casting your mind back to the beginning of the year. And um, inflation was top of everybody's um, mind, certainly here in uh, Europe and in the US. There were fears that a recession was very close to, uh, to arriving. But 12 months on, what do you think that investors missed? Again, I think it's that resilience, really. What you've seen is the supply side of the economy. So 
things which were closed down post-COVID. Clearly, it made it very difficult to ship goods. It made it very difficult for manufacturers to exist. And, and obviously, that, that led to higher levels of inflation. As we went through 2023, you really saw those supply pressures start to abate. You saw people who originally had been hesitant to go, come back into the labour market actually start to work. And actually, that meant that you had a a real, uh, a natural and positive slowing of inflation. And ultimately, that's led, as we saw in November and December, with the market starting to think, A, that central banks have done raising interest rates, and B, the market's really starting to think about what does the future cutting cycle look like. So those are the two things. Um, you know, I hate to say it, it was almost a, a year of two halves, pessimism at the start around inflation and actually a flip to a much more positive outlook as we go into uh, the end of the year. Do you share that optimism? I think so. I think the reality is that labour market looks relatively stable. You're certainly seeing um, growth in wages start to slow. You're seeing a, a more normal type of economy as we come out of those post-pandemic lows. How persistent that is, is the million dollar question. And, and certainly as we probe and we look into 24, areas that we're absolutely looking at, number one is the labour market. And the reality is we haven't really seen much slowing around that. And number two would be cracks in the credit market. And we haven't really seen that happening yet. So those are the two things that I'm certainly keeping a really close eye on. And if you start to see cracks in those, then those recession probabilities in 24 certainly have to increase. We were talking about that, I remember, probably about 12 months ago, looking for cracks in credit. But um, um, Ian, why, why do you think um, the that investors missed this resilience um, that's been the theme that Talib was just talking about? So the question really is, why are economies less interest rate sensitive than we thought they were. We thought, you know, after all this debt that we've loaded on, surely central banks, you know, the Federal Reserve in the US, hiking interest rates to levels they haven't been in in, in decades in a very short period of time, surely that was going to crater the, the economy. Um, and it didn't. And so why is that? I think one is that when you had interest rates so low for so long, a lot of companies borrowed really far out. So they, they've had very low refinancing needs, particularly in the US, slightly different in Europe. And maybe that explains the differences between the two economies. And, you know, another example is in, in the US, um, again, households, because they have these 30-year mortgages, they've they've ended up being much less in the near term sensitive to, to higher interest rates than I think we we all thought. So I think that's probably the the number one reason. Okay. And how have you had to adjust your own allocations as you've gone through the year? Have you had to change gear? I think that's fair to say. I think it made a lot of sense to be cautious um, at, at various points throughout the year. One, we didn't know how these shocks were going to filter through markets and, and, and the economy. So it made sense to be a little bit more cautious. Obviously, it made sense to be cautious during the, the banking turmoil in the US. And then as yields surged uncontrollably most recently, um, and people were pointing to everything from quantitative tightening to fiscal deficits being out of control in the US, you know, uh, there's lots of things to be worried about. But given that a lot of those shocks are in the rear view mirror, or at least they're much better understood, um, given that growth and inflation data is starting to stabilize particularly in the US, um, we've started to look for areas of the market that have maybe been kind of left behind. And there's plenty of areas of the market that have been left behind this year um, that we can maybe start to put more more risk to work and, and you know, make sure that um, 
where it was staying in the market and and have the the ability to deliver some upside if um if things continue to be relatively as Talib put it resilient and tasha what's your reading of what's happened in the us this year to Ian's earlier point, um, you know, why hasn't the higher interest rate broken the economy? Um, I like to point to something, uh, a, a very granular piece of uh, evidence why this cycle is different from previous cycle. For example, if you analyze the U.S. consumer by the income bracket, typically, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the rich gets richer. You know, the highest skilled workers tend to have the highest bargaining power in terms of wage, and then they accumulate wealth uh, over time faster than other income bracket group. But this cycle is different. The lowest income bracket group actually has had the most incremental bargaining power in terms of their wage. And then they have emerged through this crisis with more access saving compared to their typically higher paid and then more skilled counterparts. Now, this is a very important distinction because lower income bracket uh, labor or households in general tend to have a higher propensity to spend. Uh, compared to other um, you know, higher income uh, brackets, which tend to uh, save more. So this is one of the, um, I would say, the idiosyncratic nature of the cycle that's quite different from um, you know, the previous cycle. Certainly the, uh, the post-GFC cycles where you know, the, the, the world economy has been dominated by you know, relatively low inflation and relatively uh, moderate kind of growth level. Mm, and that shift to um, uh, to workers and, and wages, that's one of the themes that's emerged in the analyst survey that uh, that we run. And a quick little plug that we're just beginning to get through the results of the annual survey, which will be coming out in a few weeks. So um, keep listening um, uh, to Rich Pickings because we'll be reviewing it um, soon. Now, an issue that oh, you, you've just talked about there, you know, the, um, the impact of interest rates as Western central banks hiked and hiked and hiked to try and tame inflation. Talib, is higher for longer? Is that the new normal? I think so. I, I, I think you have to think about what's the neutral rate of interest in the economy. In economics, it's called R-star, and, and that's the level when the economy is not accelerating or the economy is not decelerating. Um, and the reality is that even if we cut interest rates 100 basis points, 125 basis points, it's likely that central banks around the world will still view that rate as restrictive. So so we've gone from very, very high rates to what we would anticipate is quite high rates and, and certainly compared to the post-GFC crisis, significantly higher. So, yeah, I think I think rates do fall from here. I think it's unlikely that we go back to the zero interest rate environment that we all got so used to. So, yes, that means higher for longer. But, but you know, we're only talking about they want to get interest rates to neutral levels rather than hugely aggressive cutting cycles that we got so used to post-COVID, post the European crisis and ultimately post the great financial crisis. So a normalisation really? I think so. I think we're moving into a new regime which looks a bit more normal than the regime which existed for the 10, 15 years post the great financial crisis. And does that mean then, if we're back to a a form of normality, does that mean that um, we're back in a 60-40 environment as far as portfolios go? I think bonds are still useful. and, And what we saw in 2023 was clearly equity markets around the world fell 
and bond markets fell at the same time because it was really driven by inflation worries. As I look through into 24, I think the market will pivot to growth worries to a much greater degree and rates are higher as we've just talked about. So there is the capacity for central banks actually to pull that traditional lever of reducing interest rates. So I would argue that that correlation of risk assets and safe assets, i.e. global government bonds, is actually likely to revert back to be more normal. I would say, though, that that correlation has probably become more unstable. So over the medium term, it remains negative, but it's a little bit more unstable than it has been historically. And um, Ian, one of the things that we've talked about um, several times is the fact that governments took on such huge amounts of debt. They issued um, huge amounts of, of debt when they needed to. But now that rates have gone up, the cost, the burden on um, on budgets at uh, the government level um, is really quite significant. So how is that going to play out over the coming year, do you think? It's, again, very complex, and it'll be different from country to country. A lot depends on, on who owns those government bonds. So there was um, some discussion from the Bank of Japan, for instance, this year, where a lot of that debt is owned domestically. Uh, in fact, almost all of it's owned domestically, um, that actually higher interest rates, um, while it puts a bit of strain on on government budgets, um, could be a net positive if it puts cash in the the uh, the pockets of uh, the Japanese domestic bondholders. So it's not as simple as higher interest rates mean um, disaster for for um, for economies. Now, in emerging markets where a lot of that debt is is um held by uh overseas foreign um investors that's where higher interest rates can lead into this doom loop of of higher interest rates big fiscal deficits lower growth um tougher times but actually you're seeing in in emerging markets relatively subdued inflation. You're not seeing that big spike in inflation that you'd seen in developed markets. So actually, I'm not overly concerned. I want to chime in here. There's a um, the, the relationship between bond and equity or the relationship between interest rate level and then equity market performance um, is an important one. There's a common misconception that, you know, if interest rate is higher, it's going to hurt equity. It is not necessarily the case, as we have seen over the last you know year and almost two years, is that it is not the absolute level of interest rate that matters so much to the equity market. It is the volatility of that interest rate level that matter to the interest rate, uh, to the to the equity market performance. The way to sort of intuitively think about it is that you know when you have rapidly rising interest rate, it creates a cost of capital shock for everybody, including both bonds as well as equity assets. So equity market respond um, in a negative way. However, once you have a relatively high and then reasonably uh, or um, steadily rising interest rate, it doesn't hurt the equity market as bad because higher interest rate is usually correlated with the expanding uh, economy, so higher growth, and a probably reasonably high level of inflation, which again tends to correspond with uh, higher pricing power for companies. So there you have, you can actually have both at the same time, meaning a relatively high but relatively stable level of interest, interest rate and then a relatively good equity market performance. The concern is that they over-tighten, that they go too far and then um, squeeze the life out of uh, um, an economy. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a saying that economic expansion do not die from old age. They simply die from being murdered by high interest rates. So that is certain, certainly the concern. Talib, you, you wanted to come in as well. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on that supply point. Um, we have seen governments across the globe issue huge amounts of debt. And there's been a lot of debate in the market about the deficit, which you're seeing in the US and people talking about, you know, ultimately who is going to buy these bonds. And again, that's a key question as we look into 24 and 25. Um, there has been talk that actually they should trade with a greater level of risk premium because clearly uh, if there's more supply, all things being equal, then the price demanded by investors uh, should be higher than that. I'm not sure that's true, but I think we are seeing a, a rebalancing in the investment universe. You asked about a 60-40. The reality is that up until 22, there was no alternative other than buying risk assets and buying equity assets. There are now reasonable alternatives. You can go and get 4 or 5% on a US Treasury. For many investors, they would think of that as being quite attractive. So again, we're looking to a more balanced investment landscape than existed post the great financial crisis. Right. Well, the prospect of higher rates spooked investors earlier in the year when the Silicon Valley bank collapsed. It sparked fears of broader financial stress and a possible banking crisis. But as my colleague Patrick Graham has been finding out, the immediate fears were overblown. He spoke earlier to Fidelity's cross-asset banking analyst, Lee Sotos. Lee, the market reaction to the fall of Silicon Valley Bank early in 2023 suggested people were genuinely worried we were headed for another financial crisis. And then that didn't happen. Why not? Well, I, I think there were some idiosyncratic um, elements to Silicon Valley. I mean, their, their securities losses as a percent of capital were, were just larger than others. But I think more importantly, the Sil Silicon Valley deposit base, which was far more concentrated than the average regional bank, um, it just made it more susceptible to a bank run. While we saw stresses in a number of smaller banks um, or the regional banks, they, they were relatively insulated just because they had, you know, basically more, more diversified deposit bases. And, you know, of course, we saw that the largest banks actually benefited from what, you know, act, what was going on at that time because, I mean, they, they actually took in deposits. And so, you know, when, when I look back on that, um, it wasn't maybe quite the crisis on a systematic basis um, for the industry, uh, but was more concentrated in maybe idiosyncratic bank models. So, so why did so many people misinterpret at that stage? Because there was an awful lot of talk at that point about this is another crisis potentially in the making, there will be further dominoes to fall and so forth. Why, why, why do people misjudge, do you think? I, I think the, the speed of transmission um, in the first couple of banks that were um, seen to be in trouble uh, caught everybody by surprise. Um, even if you go back to the financial crisis in 2008, it took a, you know, a number of months for a, a lot of these institutions to fail. And so maybe the misinterpretation came a bit just from the speed and you know, the market always needs a little bit of time to discount actually what's going on. So coming back to today, um, assuming we're heading into a downturn, how, how will banks fare? I mean, I, I think the outlook for banks is, you know, it's certainly muddied by the macro environment. But on the positive side, kind of what we were talking about, um, capital levels are quite high. Loan loss reserve levels are quite healthy. 
net interest income pressures actually might be slightly alleviating with um, some of the move down in interest rates. Fee income should rebound next year and valuations are attractive. Um, I think that, you know, the problem is the Fed is still trying to kind of thread the needle of taming inflation um, while engineering a soft landing. And the depth and duration of any downturn really is, you know, kind of how banks get discounted. But but in general, you would say you're we're heading into a more bullish phase for banks because, as we know from the past, banks tend to come well out of recessions, don't they? And or the aftermath of recessions, right? Yeah, I, I think banks tend to be exhibit kind of early cycle um, characteristics. They are quite sensitive to turns in credit and GDP. And well, you know, we we're not sure what a downturn looks like yet. Um, which which does make things a bit difficult. If the Fed were to engineer a soft landing or even a mild recession, there's many reasons to be quite optimistic about the banks going into next year or sort of maybe in the back half of next year as we kind of come out of um, a recession or whatever downturn, um, they react quite well to expansionary uh, GDP um, characteristics. Lee, thanks very much. Thank you. Lee Soto speaking to Patrick Graham. Another of the big things this year has been technology. Uh, we're going to come to artificial intelligence in a moment. Tasha, your special specialist subject at the moment. But uh, first of all, the so-called Magnificent Seven big tech stocks, they dominated US markets. What drove it? And you've got the benefit of hindsight now, but did you see it coming? <laughs> Happy to say that actually I did see it coming. It's one of the biggest risk positions uh-huh. in my portfolio this year. So yes, I feel pretty good about that. Um, as to why it behaved or did the, the way they behaved, um, well, certainly I think there is a bit of a catch up to do. These stocks were not the star performers last year. So I'm um, certainly a little bit of a, um, uh, catching up uh, on that front. But more importantly, there are um, fundamental reasons why um, these stocks are are uh, doing quite well this year, especially in the current macroeconomic environment. If you think about, you know, some of the um, operating environment that might be challenging for um, middle to smaller companies, there are a few things. Number one is the, you know, cost inflation, labor shortage, uh, higher funding costs. And you can argue that none of them really apply to these big uh, big tech companies. To start with, these tend to be high growth and highly scalable companies. So uh, you know the, the, the cost pressure or the labor shortage is not as big a concern for them. Um, they're also usually high margin business. Um, and finally, they're usually net cash companies. So you know higher funding costs almost does not matter to them at all. Um, so, so those are, you know, uh, uh, important drivers that, that that set their story apart from uh, many other uh, companies in this environment. Well, they sound ideal. Tad, will, will this carry on into 2024? I think it's a trend which which, which does continue. As Tausha touched on, I think the real question is, 
can it can this exceptionalism continue? You've got these seven super huge companies throwing off huge amounts of cash flow, and the question becomes, and this is particularly relevant for us sat in Europe, um, can there be innovators who can move in and do things quicker and better than them? That question, can they be outcompeted by smaller and more nimble companies? And certainly at the moment, given the backdrop that Tauscher um, laid out, that looks pretty much unlikely. So this US exceptionalism of these companies, I think, is something that's likely to continue, and that has a macro implication. And then uh, AI, um, it's been the year that ChatGPT really sort of slammed into the world, and AI seems to be touching almost every aspect of, um, of, of business and, and, and life, really. What do you think investors should be considering as we go into the coming year, Tosha? Because um, we're all aware of it, um, touching, as I said, lots of different aspects of, um, of life. But from an investment point of view, what should we consider? Um, I like to think about um, investing in AI with a stack sort of uh, in my mind. So different, uh, so a stack of different layers within the AI industry. At the bottom is obviously the hardware, semiconductor chips and GPUs of the world. Above that, cloud computing, because AI is very compute intensive. Above that, foundational models, um, very powerful tools as we have, uh, many of us have experienced. But the most important layer on top is the application layer. And I feel like there is still a lot of uncertainty going on because of the three features we just mentioned, easy to use, you know, multi-purpose, uh, rapid adoption. It has really created the possibilities of many different kinds of applications. And then a lot of them are still in the process of being discovered and being developed. What this means is that ultimately, um, different applications will need to be plugged into you know, individuals' life and companies' way of doing business to ultimately generate commercial, pro commercial profit. And this is a very important point because so far we're still in the investment stage of AI. People are buying the picks and shovels in this AI gold rush. So it's primarily you know, the companies or the sectors that are in the bottom layers um, that are benefiting from this. But you cannot keep on, you cannot keep on investing without considering the uh, commercial benefit of your investments. So sooner or later, people are going to have to pay attention to the applications or the commercial results of these investments. Is AI actually generating incremental you know, profit or incremental revenue for my business? And that ultimate source of commercial profit is going to feed back to the bottom layers and then continue to keep the AI investment cycle and application cycle, um, you know, a virtuous one. Um, so I think that is something for us to keep in mind. There's more certainty with the bottom layers of the AI stack, and there's more uncertainty with the top layers because you know there's still a lot of competition and a lot of um, a lot of moving pieces. And I think that's what makes investment in this space exciting. It's not just about the big companies; it's also about you know. The, the the more nimble um, you know the up and comers um, that will be in this space. It, it is exciting, isn't it? And and you're describing there you know an entire value chain that's still emerging with um, the, the the winners still to be identified. I imagine that's what makes your job um, particularly fun. Um, but there are as as the 
concepts become reality, that there are also some complications beginning to emerge. You've got legal challenges, regulatory challenges, ethical challenges. Um, and I wonder how you see those um, evolving over, over the coming year. These are sort of becoming hurdles um, in the way of, um, of some companies as well, aren't they? Oh, certainly. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that, number one, this is a rapidly moving space, and then there's just a lot of things happening. Um, and a lot of times, regu regulations or principles are not necessarily there to, to guide such an explosively developing industry. Um, but I'm glad to see that there are new um, new way of thinking about this, new um, agendas being proposed by various parties involved to try to put guardrails on this uh, rapidly uh, evolving technologies. There are always unintended consequences um, when, when something like this emerges. Are there any that have really surprised you? Well, I think certainly some of the top management movement in some of the, you know, the, the star AI companies, that was a shocker to to many of us uh, watching this space uh, closely. Um, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, AI uh, thought leaders, uh, industry participants, uh, academic leaders in this area that have voiced a very different, um, you know, future scenarios for us. A lot of them have, uh, some of them have emphasized a more human-centric approach uh, to developing the AI technology, making sure that human, um, you know, rights and benefits are at the center of what we consider. But some of them have gone out to paint a much more, I would say, gloomy uh, picture uh, for this technology. And I think it's um, important for the society to, you know, pay attention to this and then gather different perspectives um, and then speak with people who are intelligent on this matter. Excellent. And Ian, um, coming to you in Singapore, um, what struck you over the past year? What's been something that um, has stood out as one of the uh, one of the the big new emerging trends? Look, I think what's really surprised me has been the willingness of markets to go back to the really high valuation multiples that we had in the zero interest rate. Um, environment, say, in, in 2020, 2021. So you're seeing these tech companies not only having optimism around them, but investors are willing to ignore the alternatives and just say, look, we're still happy to, to pay very high multiples for earnings that are way in the future, but that we really believe in and that we think could be the next big thing. So I think that's something that I've learned from from the markets. Worry less about the interest rates, care more about the potential. We're coming towards the end now, but a quick regional view. I want to look at um, Asia as a whole, because there's been lots of different dynamics going on there. We did go into the year thinking that China was going to surge back, which it, it sort of did, but then ran out of steam to a, to a degree. Um, uh, Tausha, w which way is it going to go in the year ahead? Hopefully for the better. Um, because um, a lot of us who have been watching China very closely have been um, somewhat disappointed by the pace of the recovery. Um, what I would say, um, two things that are, I think, hopefully improving. Number one is the, uh, the property market. There are signs that uh, measures are being put in to, to stabilize the property market. Property market is certainly both an important growth engine as well as an important wealth store uh, for, for Chinese households. So, you know, solving the property market, stabilizing it would have both you know, supply and demand um, uh, impact on the Chinese economy. Um, 
Also, uh, another thing to watch out for is the stimulus that's coming our way. Uh, one of the uh, encouraging signs of you know, stimulus coming out of China is that the measures are getting more granular, meaning that you know, the, the message from the top that you know, get the economy back in good shape is starting to filter down to the more working level of the authorities. Moving from the sledgehammer of, 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 of central bank interest rates to much, much more even localized exactly. measures, isn't it? It's really incredible complexity and mosaic across the country. Absolutely. And that usually has you know, a lot more effectiveness in, a, in an economy like China, where um, you know, the authorities might have a deeper sort of uh, involvement with the actual economy. Let's move from China and uh, Taosha sitting in Hong Kong to Ian, who's in Southeast Asia in, uh, in Singapore. Now, you've got a whole host of countries, interesting countries in your doorstep. You've got Indonesia just across the water, but, but many others as well. What's catching your eye? Yes, and, and just a seven-hour flight away is, is Korea, which is also interesting, and, and Taiwan. So I think there's lots going on in this rather huge region. So if you think about the technology story that we were just discussing, the Magnificent Seven, what I think has been overlooked is the the semiconductor makers in Korea and Taiwan. You know, Nvidia is up two hundred and fifty percent or something this year, whereas the people that actually make the chips, the company that makes the chips for Nvidia, Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, has seen nothing like that kind of growth. Um, so there's some very good Korean companies like Samsung and SK Hynix that also are going to benefit from this upswing in, in technology um, and and seem like. Uh, there are more reasonable valuations um, and still have plenty of upside. And then in the, the region, um, of course, we've got Indonesia and India, um, who have the of, of major big economies, the strongest structural growth picture. And there's some great ways to play that. For instance, the, the banks in, in India and Indonesia are benefiting from a huge growth runway in terms of financialization, um, greater penetration there on very reasonable valuations, great return on equities, exciting stories. Exciting stories there. And the, another country we haven't talked about is Japan, Talib, which um, really sort of rocketed back into, into headlines uh, for good reasons. How do you see that developing over the coming year? Yeah, Japan certainly had its moment in the sun this year, um, making a 38-year high on the Nikkei um, in 2023. And really that's driven by negative interest rates. We've seen across the globe, central bankers start to move interest rates higher. Japan has, has resolutely stuck to their negative interest rate policy. Um, there's a little debate about are they likely to move away from that in 24? I think that is likely. But the core underpinning of the thesis is that real interest rates and the interest rate adjusted for inflation remains resolutely negative within that economy. When you look at where valuations are, even after the rally we've seen this year, it look pretty attractive. And you are seeing emerging signs of improving corporate governance across uh, the Japanese corporate sector. So Japan's done well. I think it continues to do well, underpinned by decent bottom-up momentum, as well as that macro force of still having very negative real interest rates. I thought what is interesting uh, in Japan is that inflation, which is a key theme in uh, DM market for the last uh, almost two years, works very differently in the Japanese market. Um, for uh, for most you know DM market, whether it's Europe or US, inflation has been simply a negative thing. You have an inflation number that is uh, too high, 
uh, the market drops uh, in response to that because of you know, higher cost of capital, higher interest rate, etc., etc. However, Japan has actually, by and large, benefited, and I mean Japan in the sense of Japanese corporates' uh, equities have by and large reacted positively to higher inflation. A lot of these, uh, there are anecdotal stories in Japan of companies raising uh, their product prices after decades, three decades or even four decades. And that is, you know, a manifestation of a different business cycle, a different pricing power. And fundamentally, it can be uh, the catalyst for a different level of animal spirit in the country. And we've not talked about Europe yet. Why is that? Is it just not cool this year? I mean, I I sit in Europe and it's, I'm always a Euro bear. And I really struggle to see any good news. You certainly saw the interest rate hikes feed through into the European economy to a much greater degree than they did in the States, just differences in the mortgage market and differences in the banking sector. And you're likely to see see the ECB cut interest rates in 24. But the reality is that an awful lot of the European market requires an accelerating industrial cycle. And it's just really doesn't look to be evident. And you see that most clearly in Germany, where the data looks incredibly poor. So yeah, Europe still not looking a happy place as far as I'm concerned. Right, well, that really is almost all the time we've got, but I'm going to squeeze in one last round of the rich pickings game with a festive twist this time. It's hot Christmas cakes and hot roast potatoes. What would you buy like a hot Christmas cake? What would you drop like a hot roast potato? Um, Tasha, let me come to you first. My hot cake is still... um AI-enabled, commercially viable application or business format. I think there's still a lot, a lot of runway ahead of this technology, especially in terms of its commercial applications and the market implications. Okay, so with your qualifiers, you've got your hot cake there. Um, what about your hot potato, hot roast potato? What would you drop? I am not the biggest fan of Europe growth prospects, so I'm probably dropping <laughs> uh, European cyclicals. Oh dear. Okay, thank you very much, um, Ian. How about you? Your hot cakes, hot Christmas cakes. No, I've not. I've never had a hot Christmas cake. Actually, it tends to be quite cold by the time one has it. But um, we'll we'll assume it's hot for now. So my hot Christmas cake. In fact, you know what? I'm I'm going to combine them. So my hot Christmas potato that's plunging today is the Argentinian peso. Uh-huh. So they've just officially cut um, the the peso exchange rate by fifty three percent, and they've announced a slew of right wing fiscal measures that's going to cut the deficit by more than three percent. Um, So it's a very scary time to be investing in Argentina, but these are generally the sort of, I wouldn't say bold, drastic measures that are needed to put a floor under an economy that's been failing for going on a century now. So it could be the year that Mm. a a Christmas hot cake is the Argentinian bond. Taking the long view a century back and um, uh, let's hope it doesn't take a century in the future to, uh, uh, to, to come back. Talib, finally coming to you, your hot Christmas cake and then your hot Christmas roast potato. So after being quite bearish on Europe, um, I'm going to go and and pick a a hot pick uh, across the European economy, and that's really corporate hybrid debt. So these are typically associated with banks. Um, 
incredibly undervalued. It's a, it, there is truth in the adage that everything has a price, and we're certainly seeing huge amounts of value in those, even in what we consider to be a slowing, uh, slowing economy. So European corporate high rates as my hot pick. Things that I drop, we've certainly been selling US high yield across the portfolios. We're looking to go up in quality in 2024, and, and many of those lower-grade European high yield um, type of credits are incredibly rich revalued here so those are the things which we've been dropping that move to quality has definitely been uh, a theme that the fixed income team at fidelity have been uh, banging on about uh, all year that's it thank you so much to ian tausha and talib and to lee sotos and patrick uh, graham thank you very much indeed for listening if you've enjoyed what you've heard then please do like share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts the producers today were holly eastman and seb morton clark in london rory fong in hong kong and we had technical production from Callum Blitz and Adam Sheldrake. We'll be back in January after a short Christmas break but until then from all of us at Fidelity goodbye and wishing you a very happy and prosperous new year. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.